going on? Cox Talks Nation, welcome back to another episode of the Cox Talks Podcast. Listen, today's episode is a long one, so let's get after it right away here. As always, um, thanks for listening, thanks for tuning in, love you all, blah, 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 blah. Questions, comments, concerns, dilemmas, get at me on Instagram at the Cox Talks Podcast. I love the feedback, big feedback guy. Everybody knows that. So, uh, yeah, listen, let's get into it. I got a long episode today, um, about an hour and 45 minutes, hockey-related. We're talking to a buddy of mine, uh, Jordan Henry, who I met when I lived out in Alberta. Good buddies with Rolly McFadden. They grew up together, spent a lot of time uh, in high school together and just fucking around being teenagers. So I got to know Hank. I call him Hank. We got to know Hank through Rolly McFadden. And listen, um, the guy's just a good small-town kid, small-town boy who tried to live the big dream playing hockey, and you know what? He did pretty good at it. He did pretty good at it. He had a cup of coffee in the NHL. He bounced around um, some minor leagues, and that's no disrespect to you, Hank. But listen, you can't put a price on life experience, and that's exactly what you got, brother, is a good life experience. So listen, without further ado, let's just get right into it. Let's bring in Jordan Henry. Okay, folks, so on the Cox Talks podcast, good Alberta boy, former NHL draft pick of the Florida Panthers. I guess theoretically, you're still a Florida Panthers draft pick. From Milo, Alberta, Jordan Henry. Hank, welcome to the Cox Talks podcast. How are you, Coxie? It's been a while. I'm I'm doing good. It's good to see you. I was trying to think today. I think the last time I saw you was... Uh, Maybe one dark, dark night at Ranchman's during Stampede many, many moons ago. I think you, I'm not even sure you were engaged to your, to your missus at that point. She was with you, but I don't think she, you were engaged yet. Yeah, that would have been, yeah, probably right before pretty much, I guess that would have been the summer before we got engaged. So yeah, we were pretty, pretty newly dating. We didn't date for too long before we got engaged. Just, you know, you find the the one you want, you pull the trigger right away. So it's just the way she goes. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's been a while, no doubt, no doubt. Yes, yes, sir, it has. So I gotta let you know, you are not the first professional athlete I've had on the Cox Talks podcast. I don't know if you can guess who my first professional athlete was that I had on the Cox Talks podcast. Well, I'm guessing it was probably the uh, the legend Roland McFadden. If you it, can it, consider him a professional of of sorts, I guess he had the title. I mean, he, he has the buckles, I guess, to prove it. So he's he's got the buckles, he's got the leather CFR jackets, and he is. I mean, it's like you said, if you want to consider him an athlete, a professional yeah, or, one, or that, a professional, I, I lean athlete before professional. That's for sure. I mean, depending on the uh, the context of of how you view the word professional but yeah the, well, the legend yeah well i'll tell you what like if you can be called a professional athlete when you're five foot seven 200 pounds and pasty as a motherfucker hey like sign me up i'll fucking sign up for that too right i think the horse is the real athlete there in that uh That's in that a- situation but you know what i guess you gotta the, the formula one guys drive the cars too right so that's uh the way she goes that's a fair point. I never looked at it that way. So you, um, for the listeners out there, Rolly's a popular guy on the podcast. You grew up with Rolly, is that correct? You guys went to we, high school together? Yeah, we did. Yeah. Yeah, we went to high school together. So yeah, 
couple couple years there and you know uh, after that and you know back and forth with hockey and everything I mean really what a what a guy you know just a, a, a tremendous supporter of mine all the way through my career and I still you know I got a group chat with some guys back home and and he's in it and we still you know it's it's an everyday thing right the the back and forth so yeah really what what a what a character what a weapon and I'm sure he's he performed well on the podcast Oh yeah, he he always brings his A game. Now, if I ha- if I was a guessing man, I would guess that Gumper and Fischl are in on that group chat as well. They are, yeah, yeah. A yeah, lot of Le- lot of Leaf well, chat yeah. then, a lot of Leaf uh, chat going on yeah, with Fish. Yeah, some, some back and forth. It's a roller coaster that chat. I mean, the you know when the Leafs are going and the Flames are in the in the tank, then it's you know <laughs> it gets one sided, and then you know the the pendulum eventually swings back. You know, come playoff time for the Leafs, obviously, usually, and then. You know, then the off season, it's it's back and forth. What are we doing? What are we not doing? So yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to see. You can tell who's riding high usually in uh, in the standings when uh, come group chat time. Well, I you know what I'm I'm actually I'm getting a little starting to get a little nervous here. Being the big Boston Bruins fan that I am, I've had a leg up on Fischl for quite a few years. And you know what? Respect where it's due. Fischl has respected the Boston Bruins. He doesn't like them, but I think. Boston's on their way down right now and the Leafs look like they're going to hover around the top there. I'm kind of hoping fish loses my number to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. I kind of hope he loses you it. when that, when that time happens. Uh, yeah. The Bruins unfortunate to hear Bergeron retired the other day. That's a big blow for them. Yeah. And actually I, I read an article the other day where they're expecting um, a potential move to Boston for Lindholm. And actually I've heard Shifley's name thrown around too. Um, both, I think, would be good fits. I mean, huge shoes to fill, of course, in Boston. But those two, uh, you know what? If if they can grab one of those two guys, they're on the right path for sure. Yeah, I don't think you're going to replace Bergeron. you got to do it by committee for sure, especially the defensive side of things. But, you know, Lindholm's a guy that plays both ways, and he plays hard. And, you know, by being a guy from out west, and, you know, I'm not a Flames fan per se, but I watch the Flames as much as I can with time change. And, you know, he's he's one of my favorite guys for them to watch. He plays hard both ways when he's going. He had a bit of a down year last year, and I think maybe that was partly to do with his two line mates picking up and leaving town. That'll sting anyone, right, when you have that oh, yeah. chemistry. So, but the way that he plays is he plays hard up and down the ice. So I think he'd be he would be a nice fit. He's a Boston Bruins style player for sure. Absolutely. So, so listen, let's talk about um, everybody here in Ontario. That's where most of my listeners are from. Everybody, you know, thinks that we got small towns here in Ontario. They think we got small towns. Talk to us about Milo, Alberta. I drove through there by accident once, but I was only ever there once. Tell us what goes on and and generally where Milo, Alberta is located. Yeah, the booming metropolis of Milo, Alberta. Um, not even a town, a village actually by by population definition. So I, didn't, I I don't even know if there is a village in Ontario. I don't know if there's anything that small here, but <laughs> yeah, about uh, about a hundred people that I know of, and that's given a pretty broad spectrum with the uh, the farms in the surrounding area. Um, believe it or not, I lived even 20, 25 minutes from Milo, Alberta. So we're talking like the middle of nowhere, basically. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this it's it's uh, southeast of Calgary. Um, if you're taking the number one from Calgary, 
you know, through Strathmore to Medicine Hat. There's a hilltop there called Clooney. And then you dive down south, down through the uh, the Bow River Valley, and you pop up on the other side. And, you know, there's, there's Milo, Alberta. Farm town, not much going on. The Milo Hotel is a is a <laughs> hot spot. Curling club? Good, yeah, curling club, yeah. Chinese restaurant. Um, they got good wings there at the at the bar. It's uh it bumps. Um my brother's jersey is actually hanging up in the bar there, which is, you know, I, I would say a bit of a slap in the face to yeah, myself. What's that about? But you know, I, I haven't been back there to uh unsurp his jersey from the wall and put mine up there. So I guess. You know, give me an excuse to go back at some point, but it's been a, quite a spell since I've been been back there. My parents live in Strathmore now. They moved uh, when we were, well, I guess when I was 18, we sold the farm and moved to Strathmore. So I know okay. they don't get back there much either, but but uh, yeah, Milo, what a what a town. Uh, the rink, I guess. The is, most yeah, is there a rink in me. Milo? There is, but it's natural ice. So it's uh, okay. lucky, lucky she's cold there in the winter. You get... Um, you get the ice in right away and you know the the community members have a schedule where you know you're on a week and you're the guy that's flooding the ice and maintaining the ice and you know but she's wide open every day so um a lot of time spent there after school and whatnot just you know with the with the guys my age ripping around and and kind of learning you know just hockey and competing and everything like that right because you're out there with your buddies and and you never want to uh you never want to lose so you kind of get that attitude right off the hop and and that was a big part of my my upbringing for sure did milo have their own uh minor hockey or would you have to go to strathmore or vulcan to play um i started out in vulcan but i played my minor hockey in lomond oh. so another yeah yeah home of the lakers yeah another absolutely um, another very small town but and you know for me we only had nine players on my team um and i was younger than all the other guys so i just happened to be like the filler but i was like the young guy on the team it was like i was you know six and they were eight i was seven they were nine so it was kind of like that pushed me as well but yeah maybe the coldest rink on the planet lomond alberta um i remember being a kid there and just my feet would be frozen and my parents we actually pack a blow dryer in my hockey bag and plug it in and just run it <laughs> over my feet after that I just remember crying after games in between periods of your feet you feel them thawed and it's just uh it's nasty but yeah Lomond Alberta a lot of great memories there it was a uh, was an awesome time they got uh, chicken wire on on the one end instead of glass so it's an it, old school barn is it is Lomond I've never been there but I've heard lots of stories is it natural ice as well or no uh, no, it's a full on, but they have a they have a old school tractor Zamboni. So it's right. a tractor with the big with the bump on the back, right? So it's yep. separate from the actual machine. It's not a one piecer. So it was uh it was uh, a treat that building. Yeah, I've I never went I never got to a game there, but I used to uh I used to frequent the old Nanton Palomino games every once in a while if you if I had nothing going on on a Saturday night and um they always had a real good rivalry with the Loman Lakers in the, the old Ranchland Senior League there. So I always wanted to get to the Loman rink, but I never I never did get there, sadly. But from there, so you played your minor hockey there. And I mean, you're living in Ontario now. So I mean, uh, and and we'll we'll get into what you're doing now uh, later on in the podcast. But I mean, you're driving up and down the highways now and you're involved in minor hockey and stuff a little bit now. So you see that in Ontario here, like, 
every 10 minutes, there's a triple A center. You would have been driving almost yeah. close to an hour to play triple A hockey. Once you kind of, you know, figured out that's the route you wanted to go. Yeah. The, I mean, the system's a little bit different back home still with, you know, double A is a little more prevalent because of all the small towns and everything. So they kind of keep their double A systems. And then once you get to triple A, it, it moves up to the bigger centers. But yeah, I mean, even from as young as, as Adam, I played in Brooks and that was an hour and change from home and we had a practice on I believe it was Tuesdays or Thursdays that was 6 a.m oh so and there was one other guy from Milo on my team so we would um we would come together and it would be like you know 4 30 leave from from our place he would stay at my place the night before and then we'd leave my dad was one of the coaches so we'd leave 4 30 in the morning drive an hour get dressed and then you know grab some quick Tim Hortons or whatever. I think it was actually Robin's Donuts was the place in Brooks at that time. I don't even think they had a Tim Hortons. Um, we'd grab some of that and then rip right back to to Milo to get back in time for school at, you know, 8.30 or 8.45 whenever Jesus it started. Christ. So it was, uh, yeah, it was uh, a time I got used to the road pretty early. And then, you know, from there I played in in Blackie, obviously, for, for Kiwi. You're a, a familiar face in that area. Oh, God, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, the the Foothills Bisons, and then I played a year in Natton with the the Mountain Double A Bisons, and then to Okotoks. So you know, from Brooks in the east, to, you know, a little bit further west with with Okotoks, and then Strathmore for a year mid Triple A before I went off to the Dub. Right on, and that's something I want to talk about too. Like, and I've I've said it before, and unless you actually witness it, a lot of people don't believe me, but midget Triple A in I'll just say Western Canada, in my opinion, is so much higher caliber hockey than midget AAA here in Ontario, maybe excluding the GTHL. And that's just kind of the money that goes into those teams. But in my opinion, I mean, you have less hockey players in the prairies because the population is lesser, so on and so forth. But there's not as many teams. It's not as a watered down talent. Does it like, does that make sense to you? Does that sound about right? Yeah, I'd say so. It's a, There's a lot more parity just because of, you know, you have, I think, I'm not familiar now that they've brought in the the academies with Edge and NAX and places like that. They have the yeah. academy circuit out there too, which is kind of taking some guys away from the the actual Alberta Midget League there. But you know, you're like six teams in the south, six in the north for the entire province, right? And there's yeah. I mean, there's 13 teams in the G, and that's Toronto and you know Mississauga basically. Yeah, so they're all 20 you know, population apart. Yeah, population obviously is is large and the amount of players is large, but it's like, you know, there's just guys from all over the place, you know, traveling to play and now building now that they've got into that as well. So, um, but yeah, it's just, I mean, it's good old farm boys. It's a different style of hockey out there too, for the most part. It's it's rough, it's tough, it's physical, it's chip and chase, then you're your GTHL, which is, you know, toe drags and drop passes and whatnot. Right. So um, yeah, that's what I grew up in, but I I mean, kind of made my bones out there too. Made me the player that I was when I turned pro and, you know, a guy that in today's day and age is, you know, very desirable, that style, style of player, right. You don't see him very often. I mean, you know, you look at a guy like Tom Wilson's now, you know, a a unicorn almost or Matthew Kachuk or guys like that, that, that have skill plus the edge. It's just, you know, it's, it's not, not too prevalent anymore because you don't really need it in order to succeed the way the game's played, especially in the Eastern part of the country. So, you know, I know in Saskatchewan, they still like to get after it. The Sassy boys are, are hard still and they always will be, but 
you yeah. know, it's it's even the dub has kind of kind of gone towards it with you know the fighting rules and you know you see guys like Bedard ripping it up and you know when I played out there my one I think my third year or second year was the first lockout the, the lockout where they took out the red line and everything and that year was like they had all the guys back the 85s Bionfanoff and Getzlaff and you know Cam Ward and all those guys were back in the dub and it was unbelievable but even those guys like were putting up 100 points like it was you know it was crazy the lack of offense just it was such a hard game to play and now it's like guys are um cliff ronick's kid had whatever 70 goals or something in the dub four or five years ago so it's like yeah it's crazy it's gone the same way that's just hockey now it's wide open it's fast it's skilled and you know these guys are are phenomenal phenomenal skilled athletes now with the speed and everything it's just you know the finer points of the game are, are kind of what you have to teach them now just because it's everything's skill based and all that right you gotta learn how to play the right way so that comes kind of at a different level and that's you know I guess my job as, as a coach now is to kind of get those things through to guys. So you, you touched on it there. You went from uh, your midget AAA, you went, uh, you were drafted into the dubs. You were drafted by Moose Jaw. Is that correct? Yes. So you're drafted and you spent like two and a half, three seasons there. Traded in my third season at the deadline, like deadline day uh, at the deadline was like basically passing as we were on the ice at practice. And it was like, I just, I didn't feel like anything was going to happen. We were having a great year. I was having a good year. I think I was lead the league in plus minus at the time. Like I was, I had found my footing. I was playing a ton and, you know, I was, I felt like I was contributing a lot to the group. And then, you know, just for whatever that reason, they, you know, they moved me and and our goalie out for, uh, you know, probably an upgrade in net for, I, for them, I guess. And, you know, an, another, 20 year old defenseman. So it was just, um, you know, matter of circumstance and then kind of tough. Cause you moved to, to Red Deer, missed the playoffs that year. And, you know, Moose Jaw ended up going to the finals and, and losing to, to um, Vancouver or I believe Vancouver. Yeah. So it just is, it's tough, but you know what Red Deer really gave me a really, really good opportunity. And that actually laid the foundation for, for my pro career. So, you know, a, a blessing in disguise really when you talk about that kind of stuff. Would that Vancouver team, would that have been the uh, team that Lucic was on? Uh, no, that was, the, that was the next year. The next year. So okay. that was the year that they won the Memorial Cup was next year because in Red Deer, we lost to Medicine Hat uh, game right. seven in the first round in Red Deer. We took them the distance. I think they beat us 2 nothing in Medicine Hat in game seven, and then they went on to – to beat Vancouver in the dub finals and then Vancouver turned around and beat him in the Memorial cup. So, yeah, I've always kind of hated, hated that rule. Um, just, you know, the host getting in automatically, blah, blah, blah. And I mean, how many times does it happen? You see the host, the host wins the Memorial cup, but they get ousted in the first or second round. It, it fucking yeah, drives just, me nuts, but they're fresher. Right. And they're yep, not banged fresher, up. And they're sleeping in their own beds. Like they're, you know, they, yeah, yeah it's a massive it is what advantage. it is. Yep. So uh, in Moose Jaw, smaller market WHL team, the crushed can. You were fortunate enough. That's what they called it, is it not? Yeah, the crushed was, can, yeah. the arena in Moose Jaw. You were fortunate enough to play in that rink. And a lot of guys that I ever talked to um, about playing in the dub, that was one of the rinks that was when you when you talked about uh, their favorite barn to play in or their least favorite barn or the most um, unique barn. That old Moose Jaw barn always came up in conversation talk to us about the crushed can 
yeah, what a what a barn. It's kind of it's sad when they when they took it down there. I mean, obviously, you know, it was old and it was a little bit dingy. Um, you know, you couldn't see the stands on the other side of the rink, basically, right? If you're sitting halfway up, you couldn't see the people above halfway up on the other side. It went down so low and it was buried in the ground so far that you could basically reach up at the lowest point from the outside of the rink and touch the top of the arena. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, it was That's like, wild. it was so low on the outside. Like there would be snow drifts that went in the parking lot over like on top of the arena. That's how low it is. <laughs> and and um, I remember when I was there, you could still smoke in bars, obviously. Um, and they had the Molson Lounge downstairs in the bottom of the rink, right next to the <laughs> visitor's hallway. <laughs> So like it's first, second intermission, like everyone rips down there. It fits maybe, I don't know, 200 people in this thing and they are hacking darts and drinking. And it's like, there is smoke rolling out into the visitor's hallway and it is just terrible down there. And they had like the old, (laughs) like the old hard plastic shit on the floors. Like that everyone said, like, this is safe for your skates, but like, not not safe. It's no. not. And there's like, I mean, people walking back and forth, like there's salt and sand from the parking lot. And just like, it was a gong show down there. One, I... one tiny little chain separating the, uh, the players walking out from the actual fans at the corner of the rink with like a probably 70 year old security guard. I was doing absolutely nothing. Brandon went up in the crowd, a couple of their guys one time. It just like, it was such a Saskatchewan Western Hockey League old school rink. It was, I mean, a ton of fun to play there as a, as a home player. And the times I went back there afterwards, it was still fun because it was just like, you know, all the memories and everything and you get to see it from the other side. It was, yeah, a classic, classic Byron for sure. Well, and Moose Jaw, like Moose Jaw and, and a lot of those Saskatchewan towns <laughs> that have WHL to like gritty gritty fucking towns like yeah. very oh, yeah. very like there's no fucking around like towns like moose jaw comes to mind prince albert even saskatoon like saskatoon beautiful whl rink built for an nhl team actually if i if i read correctly but just gritty towns that like uh, whether you're a home player or or a visiting player like you had to see some interesting stuff in that eastern conference of the whl yeah it wasn't like every night there was a dog fight i mean you're going to Brandon or you're going to Regina or PA or Swift is the same way. Like it's just, yeah, it was, I mean, greasy, greasy barns, greasy fans, but you know what? Passionate people, blue collar people and in Moose Jaw, they, they supported us tremendously. The fans there were great. Um, you know, they, they packed the barn all the time. They were loud, they were excited. And it was, it was honestly an awesome place to play. I mean, for me, for a small town kid from Alberta, it was, you know, right in my wheelhouse. I think Moose Shaw was, I don't know, I want to say like 35,000 at the time, you know, and that's, I mean, coming from a town of 100, that's still, <laughs> you know, she's a big place for me. So I got to at least kind of upgrade a little bit on my way to to pro, you know, I went from there to Red Deer is about 90,000 or so. And then, you know, onto the, onto the bigger spots after that. So I got to kind of get my feet wet a little bit, but. Well, and, and you touched on it too, about the support, like out there in those towns, or cities, whatever you want to call it. Like literally on a, you know, on a February night, there is nothing else to do other than go watch the junior hockey team play. And you talk about the support. I've always, I've always said the WHL has to have, they have to have the best support fan support in the Canadian hockey league, in my opinion. 
Yeah, the people there are great. And like you said, they're your only ticket in town. And I think that's kind of where, you know, the OHL in some respects struggles in some spots because just, you know, Toronto itself as a city is such a major sports town, right? Like you don't, even the Marlies for how much success they've had recently are not, you know, during the regular season, they don't draw great, right? The Bulldogs had to leave their American League team. The only teams that are really successful are are far enough outside Toronto where you got a big enough center like London where yeah. you know you don't want to drive two hours and change to Toronto and you got a great product there and they have a nice building. So, you know, every team in the dub is like that, save for Calgary and Edmonton, basically, right? You're a long ways from a major center. You don't have, you know, NHL hockey or major league baseball or, you know, in Saskia, they got the riders, but not during the winter. So, <laughs> you know, they're looking for something to get after it with, right? I mean, there's, there's gotta be some watermelons left over from the summer that they got to get through still. So they're, uh, they're still looking to get after it during the season. And yeah, the people there are awesome, extremely yeah. passionate and just, you know, make it a lot, a lot of fun to be a young kid and, and experience being, you know, the biggest ticket in town for sure. Well, and the other thing too about Toronto, like, yeah, Toronto's a sports town, but it's very, very, very much a Leafs town. Like those teams right close to the city. Um, I guess St. Mike's doesn't even have an OHL team anymore, but I, I'll just use Mississauga, the Steelheads, for instance. They're like, you know, they play in a beautiful arena. Brampton had to leave, like they had to go back to North Bay, um, whatever. But it is hard for those teams to draw when no, people really in that GTA, people really only care about the Leafs when it comes to hockey. Yeah, Having said that, you'd tough. think the Marlies, because of that, because the Marlies are quote unquote, you know, future Leafs, maybe someday, you'd think they draw better too, but they don't. I don't know. The way the Leafs operate too is not, you know, you don't have a ton of guys anymore with the the realm that they've been drafting in, you know, and the guys yeah. that they picked up with Marner and Matthews. Like you don't have guys that are spending time in the minors and grinding it out you know, where fans are watching them for two, three years before they get to the Leafs, right? They're a, you know, they're a big ticket team. They're a free agent, bring in the free agents. You know, you've got your blue chip guys, you have your core now, and they're adding, you know, through free agency, not really through young prospects. So it's, you know, there's a little bit of a disconnect probably there too. And then they shove a bunch of guys that are on, you know, whatever contracts designed to beef up the team that are, you know, have played in the NHL for 300 games and now they're, they're good American leaguers. So, you know, it's a little different feel with the Marlies, I think on the way that, you know, you're not going to see guys that are, you know, one step away too, too often with them. I don't think they're a little bit different mix. So it's, it's interesting there. That could play a little bit of a part in it too. Now, before we move on to your time in Red Deer, I was going through the Moose Jaw rosters and, there was a specific player I wanted to ask you about. And that's just because me again, being a Bruins fan, I got to ask you about Johnny boy. Chuck was that guy as much of a fucking mutant as his game showed or what? Oh man. The best guy, like the nicest guy in the world. Me and him actually had the same billet. All right. All right on. We were together for a short stretch and then he ended up going up. He was, he was drafted by Colorado. So we ended up, um, And I think Hershey in the beginning or Lowell, one of those places. But, you know, he was there for, I guess, the year, my last year I was there. I had a different billet then. And then we kind of moved in and then I switched into his the year that he left, my 19-year-old year. But, I mean, great guy, the best, you know, fun-loving guy, run guys over, take the hardest slap shots you've ever seen in the world. Like, And that's he, what I wanted to ask you. I could sit and watch Johnny Boychuk slap shot highlights for hours. 
oh my God, could pound the puck, pound the puck. And, <laughs> and he was at the point there where he was like, he was like, you know, he's a good skater for his size. He was big, thick, heavy guy. Yeah. And he would hammer guys too. I, he hit a guy in Moose Jaw. I can't remember who we were playing, but he hit a guy and the guy's helmet went over like the tall glass. Like it was like right <laughs> by the penalty box. It was massive. It was like insane. That and that and just ripping clappers was you know his signature, right? And that's you know, as a D-man, what more do you want than just running people over and then ripping the puck by the goal? It's uh what a treat to watch. So yeah, he was he was awesome. Just a great, great guy too. And you know, a guy as a younger player that that I looked up to as, you know, a mentor and that was, you know, had all the time in the world for myself and you know, him and I had a great relationship when, when I was there. So, you know, really grateful for guys like that. Um, we had a bunch of guys like that, Kyle Brodziak and, yeah, you know, to a certain name. extent, yep. Derek England, like kind of right when I was transitioning in and Lane Manson and Jared Barasa and just like tons of guys that were older and just salt of the earth, awesome guys. And I mean, you do get that in, in Western Canadians too, for the most part. Oh, yeah, you do. You know, yeah. But it was just awesome, awesome, those guys. And they did a ton for me of. Yeah, that's just kind of, I mean, there's, I, I like to collect Boston Bruin jerseys. Uh, Johnny Boychuk's jersey is definitely on my list. So I, I had to, I had to ask about him. So you touched on it at the deadline, like the deadline of the deadline, you get shipped up north up a little bit further north in Alberta to uh red deer. And you, I guess you enter the fucking world of the rebels and one Mr. Brent Sutter, a little bit of a culture change, a little bit of a wake up call. Like we've all heard the Brent, St- Brent Sutter coaching stories. What, what is it? What is it like stepping into that dressing room for the first time and, and the culture that's there? Yeah, it was it was wild because you know a guy named Steve Young was our coach in Musha at the time, and, and you know he was like a you know kind of a quiet guy, not really too boisterous, you know, very I guess technical, and you know I, I would say almost new school at the time. Um, you know, yeah, deadline day, like I said, I thought I was having a great year, and then it was interesting. They called they called a guy off the ice in the middle of practice. And I was like, shit, he was a defenseman too. And I thought that like maybe he had got traded. And then like 20 minutes later, he came back out on the ice. I guess they were asking him about a couple of the guys that they traded for, traded me for, he had played with. And he was just looking at me like (laughs) so weird. And I was like, I got the vibe from him. Like he didn't want to say anything, obviously, but he it was written all over his face. Like they had asked him, like, "Hey, we're gonna trade, you know, Hank for this guy or whatever, right?" And it was just like he, it was written all over his face, and I was like, I just was like, "Holy shit!" I think I might be getting traded. And then sure enough, we come off the ice, and like the GM was just waiting in the tunnel there, and he's like, "Hank," you know, he came in, brought me in with the coach, and then you know, told me they traded me to Red Deer. So. um you know, kind of a shock, obviously, you know, first time being traded and everything like that. And, you know, after I thought I'd really gotten my feet wet and really tried to establish myself in, in the league and, and in Moose Shaw. So, you know, a little bit tough. And then, you know, your phone rings 20 minutes later and it's Brent Sutter and it's like, there's a whole another shock, right. Of just, <laughs> you know, the aura of, of the Sutter family and Brent Sutter. So, you know, Hey, 
you know, we're happy to have you. We're really excited. You know, you know, you're a player we've liked for a long time and, you know, the bus is coming through. We're on our way to Brandon for a road trip. Like we're coming through. We just left Red Deer. We'll be there in whatever, four hours to pick you up. And I'm like, oh shit, I got to pack my stuff and whatever. He's like, we'll drop you off on the way back after we play Brandon and Regina or whatever. And then you can drive your car up to Red Deer. So bus picks me up and, you know, I got a, an overnight bag and we head off to Brandon for, uh, the first game I played with Red Deer, we were getting shelled right away. Um, James Reimer was in that familiar face to the, uh, oh, yeah. the Toronto area people. Uh, um, he had, he was having a tough go. Um, so TV timeout comes or not even TV timeout. It's like midway, I'd say midway through the first period. And it's like two, three, nothing already. Brent pulls them puts the other goalie in and just during the entire length of the play just proceeds to just like dress Reimer down on the bench, just Ooh. giving it to him. Yeah. Giving it to him for like a good two, three minutes whistle goes and he's like, get the hell back out there and stop the puck. He put him right back in again. Just, he just pulled him to the bench just so he could give it to him. <laughs> That's uh yeah, that's old school shit right there. And I was like, whoa, here we go. Like, this is not, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore with uh, with that situation. And then, uh, you know, like I said, we were getting beat. I think it was like 5-1 after two. He comes in the dressing room, you know, gives the boys a pretty pretty stern talking to and proceeds to bench four defensemen, not none of which are myself. So he sits 4-D. So there's me, one other guy, and then he pulls Chris Versteeg back, another familiar, semi-familiar Toronto face. He had a you know, yeah. half a cup of coffee with the Leafs there. Yeah. He actually lives in, in, uh, he lives up, he lives down Whitby. here in Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah. He lives Brooklyn. Like... Yeah. Brooklyn. Yeah. 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 Very familiar face. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he puts him back and there's me, another D and him and we're going three guys for the third period. And I'm like, oh, Holy, like what is going on here? And then, you know, uh, for whatever reason, you know, that game ended how it ended. And it just like, it, it was kind of like Brent was just an instant fan of mine and gave me all the confidence, all the support in the world. And, you know, like I said, really, really powered me into the next level of my career. And and Steger ended up being my D partner for the rest of that season, actually he played oh, D wow. for the entire wow. rest of the second half of the year. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, I just give him the puck and he would wheel it and I'd just clear the net front and be physical. And it was perfect. We were, we were a great tandem. I'm not sure how um, pumped Boston was about that because he was a Boston Bruins draft pick at the yes, time. And, 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 you know, he turned pro the next year, had a great season with Providence. I'm not sure how pumped they were that he was playing D for, you know, <laughs> 30, 40 games in the, in the Western league. But you know, I'm not sure that they were too eager to call up Brent Sutter and voice their um, opinion either. He would have given them an earful back. So I don't think he really uh, cared about what other people thought, which is, uh, you know, a good a good characteristic to have. But, yeah, interesting, interesting start to my first couple of days as a, a Red Deer Rebel. Well, and that just kind of goes to show you, too, like junior coaches, junior hockey coaches are some of the best coaches in hockey because they're grooming and molding and developing these kids for the pros. But... At the end of the day, it's still a junior league. If your fucking dick is so big that NHL teams don't want to call you and be like, what the fuck are you doing playing him 40 games on the point? Like, that's fuck, that's saying something right there. 
Yeah, that is. Yeah, that's. I mean, like you said, his reputation precedes him in hockey in general, let alone Central Alberta and the Western Hockey League and everything like that. Right. So it just was. It was a crazy, crazy start. But like I said, I owe so much of my success, you know, after junior hockey to him and and really the entire Sutter family. I just was. You know, I think being a small town Alberta guy, I was their their kind of guy, their kind of player. And you know what? When when they like you, they will go to the ends of the earth to to do everything they can for you to support you and help you out. So it was, I mean, like I said, a, a blessing in disguise the trade. I was obviously a little bit choked about it. And then you kind of, you know, you never want to watch your your former team have too much success after you get traded. But you know what, it was a great opportunity to really, really develop and and be under a guy in a system that was, you know, professionally oriented, you know, taught me how to do things away from the rink at the rink, you know, all kinds of things that just really, really helped me moving forward. Absolutely. Now I asked you a question there uh, when we were talking off air about the time that Brent Sutter took all the one piece sticks away from you guys and made you play with wood sticks. And your response was, I was there when he did it one time. So I've heard yeah, other I've heard, yeah, I've heard other Red Deer Rebels tell this story. So this was not a one off. This has this was not a one off thing. No, it was a move for sure. It was a move that he would he would <laughs> yeah, do. talk to us. Yeah. Tell us about it. it. It actually happened like right after I got traded. We were in a losing streak at, when I got traded there, and obviously we got thumped in Brandon, and then had to ride the bus all the way back. I didn't fortunately, because I got to get dropped back off Mushan Drive. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and he had the the signature, um, the black bus, we called it. You know, when you lose a game, it's like no TVs, no, I mean, we didn't have really have phones at the time. I guess you could text and call, right. but it was like, no, like guys had like that portable DVD players and shit. Some of them, it was like none of that stuff. Lights you sit off, and think about what you dark. did. And then sometimes <laughs> he would throw on just like a movie at the front TV, like like the one right by the bussy where he could watch. Massive Kevin Costner fan too. Sneaky shocked about Brent Sutter. Big Kevin Costner fan. So he would throw on like, you know, a Bull Durham or something like that at the front just for him. Just yeah. to like rattle the boys even more. Whereas like, hey, like you guys shit the bed today. I didn't do anything. You know, I'm still enjoying my bus ride. You guys can suck it in the back basically. So... <laughs> um, yeah, so right after we got back, it was like we had a day off and it was um, 6 a.m. workouts Ooh. for everyone, school guys, everything. And he was there, you know, to his credit. And that's one of the main things that I take away from from a guy like Brent Sutter. And, you know, being a coach myself now is, you know, you you had a lot of coaches in your career and you know, some things are great that coaches do and some things you don't like and you file them both away for your coaching career. But, you know, to his credit and being the guy that he is, you know what, he was there at 6 a.m. It wasn't like he, he took the trainers in there and made him run through a workout. He was in the gym with us walking around. He had the shit kickers on. You know, he was watching guys. He was like, he was like, hey, boys, I'm, I'm here with you. I'm here beside you. But, you know, we're going to get through this thing together. But it was still like, yeah, 6 a.m. workouts, whatever. The uh, the guys that weren't in school anymore would go back and, and do their thing. And then the school guys would go to school. And then we come back for practice after school. And, you know, a couple we lost a couple more after that. Um, we just had a bad team. We weren't any good. And I think he probably knew that. But, you know what, you can't just 
he's not a guy that lets his foot off the pedal, whether you're a, you know, Memorial cup champ team like he had, or a bottom of the barrel team like we were. So, you know, we showed up one day, all the one pieces were gone. Wood sticks were out. Um, you know, white tape on the blade with, with work written on it in Sharpie. And it was, we're using these till, uh, till we win a game. So it was just, um, it was something and the joke was kind of on him because I, I actually used wooden sticks my first year of junior. So that was like two years before that. I had the Sherwood 9950 Spets a curve. Uh, no oh, goals yeah. that year. Shocking. Weird. <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah. Weird. yeah, weird. Double good cross checks. So I had, I had a few <laughs> pins, scraps that, from the wood sticks. So, but yeah, so I was, uh, I mean, comfortable with them. You know, I was just I grew up on wood. So it was no big yeah. deal. But for some of the, uh, the younger guys that were, you know, well in into the the synergy era, and you know, one pieces and everything like that were a bit uh, taken aback by the the wood sticks. And yeah, it was a move for sure. If you ask, you know, you heard guys like Colby Armstrong talk about it, yeah. and you know, guys that were were well before me and the teams that you know had a lot of success there. You know, it it was a move of his. He wasn't scared to bring it out, and and he did for you know we probably used him for another couple games after that before we bared down and 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 won one. So yeah, quite a quite a time did you a- get did you get just one wood stick or were they yes like- just one in every guy's stall so i don't I, they never i mean they never broke but right. I, I would be interested to see what would happen if one would have broke i mean he, he probably had a stash of them in the equipment well, room. i'm sure the equipment guy yeah a credit to the equipment guys there um to amazing guys would be like what like what is going on here and you just you know give the give the shoulder shrug like yeah. Hey boys, it's out of my hands, right? So I think it was him uh, that was saying on I think it was Brent Sutter that was saying on like spitting chicklets, like it was amazing to watch. You know, guys weren't, you know, everybody hit the net in practice and in warm-up because nobody was stepping in trying to pick corners and take these clappers <laughs> because they only got one fucking stick. Yeah, didn't want to break your stick. Yeah, you might not be playing if you didn't have a stick in the rack, right? So you gotta you gotta take it easy and you just gotta, you know, there's some a lot of good for the goalies, right? on the ice wristers and stuff like that Absolutely. guys were going too hard with slappers, but yeah. What were yeah. they? Were they, were they all Sherwood 50, 30? They were it? probably Sherwoods. I'm sure that was Sherwood like, yeah. by then had to be the only ones still making yeah, wood sticks. Probably the only ones left. Yeah. I would maybe, so. I can't, maybe Bauer. For whatever I, reason, yeah, I can't yeah. remember what they were, but I don't think the league, a lot of the league was using Sherwood at that time too. Even like the one pieces and the two pieces. I know we were using them in Moose Jaw. Then uh, I think we were CCM in uh, in Red Deer when I got there. Okay, but it would have been probably Sherwood Wood Six. They would have been the easiest easiest access to buy a bundle of them, couple bundles from Walmart, and chuck them on the. Uh, <laughs> you didn't so get to pick your turn, obviously oh. either. Too it was like a yeah, gong show. I mean, some guys just had like the straight with the square toe. It was just. <laughs> it was a gong show, but you know, I did not pretty hockey with them, but you know, got back to to working hard, chipping in and, and grinding it out to get wins. So yeah, back it was to that up. prairie hockey chip. Exactly chase. right. He thought the boys were getting a little too uh getting a little too comfortable in their in their game and in their their style. So you had to bring back down to earth. Um something that actually just kind of popped into my head. Let's go back to the to the draft deadline or not, pardon me, the trade deadline for a second there. Like you hear about it. There's so much media coverage about trade deadline in the NHL now. In junior hockey, it's January 10th, I believe. I mean, that's what it is here in Ontario. I believe that's what it was 
out in uh, the prairies too. But so you, you hear about NHL guys, you know, they get the phone call, they get on a plane, they fly, you know, from Columbus to Montreal or whatever. And, you know, everything's kind of looked after. Like you had to change schools, you had to change billets, like you had to do all that stuff. In a sense, I guess when you change schools, if you were still in high school, you you know, you get to that high school and you're kind of the new kid at school, you've got your teammates and stuff. But how big of a struggle for that is, you know, for, for a 16, 17, 18 year old kid was, how was your transition to that? It's gotta be tough for those guys. I, fortunately enough, I was done high school already. I was 19 okay. when I got traded. So I was out of school. Um, you know what? Very, very fortunate, um, to get another great billet in Red Deer moved in with, with Teddy Vandermeer, one of the, uh, the oh, youngest the Vandermeer, the Vandermeer crew. Yeah. Another oh. central Alberta staple as far as hockey. So yeah, Teddy, the youngest is the same age as me. And I moved in with him and his billets and they were amazing, amazing people. Like yeah, Neil and Vera Tomalty, they were awesome. They had guys forever there. Um, you know, Terry Ryan and guys like that through, through, you know, their building system. So they'd seen it all. Uh, especially with guys oh, yeah. like TR there. I think that they had, uh, they, they knew what to expect. And if uh, they had had more than, I think Jimmy Vandermeer was with them too. So they had, they'd seen um, about everything that you could see in junior hockey. So they were awesome, welcoming. And then, you know, to have another guy on the team with you really, really helps too. And, you know, so that part of it was what it was. And I was closer to my family too, you know, my parents being, being in Strathmore at the time, oh, yeah. they got up for a ton of games down the stretch there. And, you know, so that was, that was welcoming too, right. When you change situations and you got people supporting you close to you has made it a lot, lot easier. And, you know, to be back in Alberta is not too bad too. Red Deer's a, a nice, nice city. And, you know, they got great people, great fans, great organization, you know, top notch run everything there too. So that was, um, you know, a, a welcome, welcome change as well. I had a uh, I had a waitress one time at Billy Bob's slap me so hard that she knocked me right off my bar stool in Red Deer. Yeah, they, I yeah. mean Central Alberta girls, like you say, they've seen they've seen a thing or two, and they're not they're not messing around either. Well, that's for sure. It's not I, you know you speak sideways and and you get treated <laughs> in in such a manner, right? So that's just the way she goes. I'm pretty sure you've been witness to it, but I tried pulling the eyelash trick on her. Oh yeah, and and you know, actually, Matt Henry brought it to the table, but oh, he's the uh, yeah, he's the culprit. eh? But you know, Roly, he's you know, he's got to just fucking take ownership of everything. That's cool, right? But um, so I did it to this waitress, and she fell for it. And after her, I mean, you the whole you couldn't get away with that shit now. No, you you couldn't. No, but um. So I kissed her and she opened her eyes and she slapped me. And yeah, it knocked me. It was embarrassing, man. It knocked me right off my bar stool. That's, that's my, my greatest memory from Red Deer for sure. Yeah. yeah I've seen Roy take a couple, um, couple upside the head on that similar move, but it's sneaky worked for him too. A couple of times. I remember he did it at Cowboys one time and the, and the waitress had like a full tray of drinks. So she couldn't really like, she was disgusted and upset, obviously, but she couldn't do anything because she had like a full trainer on. So she just yeah. had to kind of kind of eat it and move on. So he got off easy on that one. But yeah, what a what a move. Matt Henry, I didn't know that he was the originator of that he's, move. I should have, you know. I'm, well, I, I don't know. Like he's the originator within our our within our group, yeah, yeah. that we had there. He's he's the originator. But uh anyways, back on topic here. WHL bus trip. 
talk to us about though, like Brandon to Prince George, like because you guys weren't you weren't flying back in those days, were you? No, I don't think you we were, were allowed to. We were not flying. I they're definitely not flying now. I don't think either. But it just was no. like. But there's some gnarly road trips there, and yeah, they, and across the like the prairie winters, like fuck off. How do you deal with that? Um. Well, like it, we kind of touched on earlier, I was used to the travel being from small town Alberta. I mean, we were always you know an hour and change to the rink ever. You know, just practices so were back and forth and whatnot, and you know early mornings and everything like that. So I was used to it. Um, but yeah, it is harsh in the winter, right? Like the snowstorms and all that. And just, you know, going from, you got to go one trip every year, right? You either do from the Eastern conference or East division there, you either do BC or the U S. Um, so you alternate your Kamloops, Kelowna, Prince George, Vancouver, or, you know, Seattle, Everett, Portland, Tri-Cities, right? So, um, oh man, a lot of, a lot of miles on the bus, a lot of playing cards, a lot of movies, you know, you get ingrained with the slap (laughs) shots and your major leagues and all the, all the classics though. Right. But that's, you know, I'll be honest with you. I I played a lot of my pro time in the minors too. I spent a ton of time on the bus there and it's just grueling as it is. And sometimes in, you know, as long as the trips are, it's some of that stuff is when you quit playing is the stuff that you kind of miss almost just because you're just, you know, you have nothing else to do. There's not a care in the world. You're, you're doing what you love. You're playing hockey and you're with, you know, your brothers on the bus. Right. So it's just, oh, yeah. I mean, some fun times and some, you know, stupid stuff and whatever <laughs> and, and all that that goes along with it, but just, you know, a lot of, a lot of time on the bus, but also, you know, a lot of good memories from just, being close with your teammates. And I think now like guys aren't probably as close because of cell phones and all that stuff. And, I would you agree. know, social media yeah. and all that, right. Like you would think I would be willing to to bet if you step on a Western hockey league bus right now, even though the trips are long, it's, you know, guys buried in their phones for three, four hours. Right. And, and it doing, is. they're not chatting, they're not playing cards. They're not having fun. Right. Whereas like you said, our, our age group, you know, we barely had phones. Right. And all you could do is text and call on them. They weren't good for anything except for that. So just time quality, quality time spent with your group and your team and coming together and just bonding on the road. So, yeah a long 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 trips but fun as well right you get, and if you, know, you did want to text it took you 10 minutes to fire it out because you had the old t9 text oh entry, god right? you're like changing back <laughs> yeah it's just a gong show i would not even worth it right not even <laughs> worth it but also nice you know sometimes uh, you probably crave that right now to disconnect and oh yeah and not have to be answering your phone or texting people back all the time and doing whatever you got to do right you know to be less accessible would be you know desirable at some mm-hmm. times for sure is there is there a bus trip by any chance that just jumps out at you one where you're like holy fuck like this is it this is this is where it ends a couple nasty ones kind of coming through saskatchewan there right where it's so wide open and windy like through swift yeah. current and it's just like snowing and cold and blowing and a couple memories i guess not really where i thought we were in danger or anything but speaking of brent sutter i think it was my 20 year old year we were in the on the U.S. trip, and we were in Everett. Um, we were going from pregame skate to pregame meal, and our bus driver cut the corner a little tight on one of the tighter streets in the city, and um, a lamppost took out the back window of the bus. 
So they're two layer windows, obviously. So it was like the tinted outside layer that got knocked out. It was right beside where, where I was sitting in the back. There was an older guy and just big crash and glass everywhere. And we get parked. The boys go in, you know, to sit down to eat. And obviously Brent takes his pound of flesh off of the bus driver, you know, right outside <laughs> the bus on the sidewalk. Like, you know, you could see the point. Like even the, the bus driver and, isn't safe with that guy. You no, know, no one's safe. Nobody's <laughs> safe. And that was the bus driver's last trip. He got fired after he got back. We got a new bus driver next road trip. You know, just the way she goes, right? It's, you know, no one no one can dodge the axe if you're not pulling your weight, right? So it's, uh, <laughs> there was that one. And I mean, just some of the, the beauty bus drivers we had, right? Like in... In Moose Jaw, uh, we had a guy named Flying Brian, and he would rip. He would <laughs> buzz. Like, it trips were, it seemed like they took half the time as with other guys. He was flying and, you know, stop at a rest stop, and he would chain smoke four darts in, like, two minutes, and then back on the bus, boys, like, let's go for the next leg, right? So, Flying Brian, legend. Shout out, Flying Brian. Kept the boys <laughs> safe, but also got us there in a timely fashion, and then... You know, we had a guy that was opposite that. We called him Husky John because <laughs> he stopped at every single Husky rest stop from, it must have been Calgary to Vancouver. Like it, it seemed like a 25 hour trip. Like we were always stopping and we're like, what is this guy doing? Like, why is he always stopping? Probably hacking darts too. But, you know, as, as the boys did back in the day, um, we had a guy that would just, smoke while he drove he would just hold his his dart out the, the mini window that was um <laughs> beside him so saving time again like i, I gotta Locking give him credit it's in, it's innovative and you're you're not wasting time stopping right so yeah just i mean so many hours spent on the bus but you know I never see. anything dangerous by any means i just envision and correct me if i'm wrong like especially when you're ripping through saskatchewan <clears throat> you know out to regina or swift or wherever I see a lot of fucking teen burger combos on the menu for the boys. Cause that's all there is out there is a and W fucking restaurants on the highway. That's, yeah, that's, all, that's all there is. Legendary a and W's. Yeah. We had, I mean, the teams had been there for so long. We had like the sneaky stops, like right. um, Indian head, Saskatchewan, just um, East of Regina. Sneaky, sneaky baked lasagna. Oof. I think they put, I think they put brown sugar in the, in the pasta sauce. And I was actually talking to the boys about that the other day. My brother is in on that group chat too. And another guy uh, from the area, Brett Robertson played five years in the dub too for a bunch of teams. Mm -hmm. So we were just, for some reason, you know, my brother played for three, four teams. So he's a bit of a suitcase. So we were talking about pregame meals and I, and I brought up Indian head Saskatchewan. So yeah, awesome there. I mean, we did a lot of BPs too, because, you know, okay. Yeah. A lot of BPs in the West. BP's post games for sure. Um, you know, every Brent had his like sneaky spots too that he would like to go. You know, he was more of a support local kind of guy. So smaller right. places. Uh, I remember we got food poisoning one time in Calgary post game meal. Um, we had like 10 guys, something with the salad. They ate the Ooh. salad and we had to play at home the next day. And like, everybody was dead. Like it was like, the boys were in one the next day, but I didn't get poisoned because I don't mess with salad too, too often. So I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm off the veggies, but yeah. So I was fortunate there. I was, uh, I was one of the guys that survived, but there wasn't many of us. So didn't get too much, I guess, fast food to go I mean, no, where I was. We were, we were always well taken care of, but you know, you do hear the stories about 
you know, pulling over and, and getting whatever you can scrape up, right? Some so, of the low budget teams probably, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I got the um I'm sure you've drove through it, but up in Kindersley, Saskatchewan, there's a little restaurant it's attached to the Ford dealership, which is attached to the SO station, and it's called the Coliseum. And uh, a couple mutual buddies of ours, the Hubbard brothers, lived, they were living up there doing some fucking oil rig work or whatever it is those guys are up to. You never really fucking know. Yeah, the, the jacks of all trades. I got them hooked on that. Uh, we used to, guys I worked for in Alberta, we used to go up to Kindersley and Combine. We, we did, had some land up there. And the fucking lasagna up there was is outrageous. It's so good. And I got the, I got the Hubbard brothers book uh, hooked on some good lasagna up there too. So you can't go wrong with good fucking lasagna. Yeah, baked too with just the piping hot little you know stone things that it comes in. Unbelievable, Unbelievable. man. Yeah, this yeah. one was the best. I'd, I'd say probably best lasagna I've ever had in my life. Indian Head, Saskatchewan. I can't remember what the restaurant is called but it was like it was in like a gas station too like it was connected <laughs> to a gas station i think it was i'm but amazing and the greatest people there service you know the crispy oh, yeah. garlic toast unbelievable yeah top well probably top every like spot. probably every dub team that travels through there like it because word would get out right and yeah probably everyone every on the way to brandon for sure there are yeah. mooseman i think was the the hot spots to stop on the way to brandon you just you know you got to get something in a certain time before the game right so for sure. So listen, let's fast forward to the draft. You're drafted in 04. Um, I actually didn't get drafted. Oh, you didn't. That's no, I did why not. I, I fucking, That's why you find you. Me. <laughs> and I was like, where I thought I was missing some. So you weren't drafted. I was an undrafted free agent. Yeah, so that goes, so there agent. goes, did you go to the draft or no? No, no, no. I was never even like remotely close to being taken well, in. There goes about my, 20 questions I was going to ask you, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah my 17-year-old year was my first year in the dub, and I just was like, I mean, I didn't play that much. We had, like I said, a vet, veteran-laden squad that year. Um, okay. So I was fortunate enough to make it. We didn't. I think I was me, I would, maybe two, one or two rookies was it. So especially on D, like I was number seven. I think I played like 10 out of the first – 30 games or something like that like i oh, wasn't okay. playing at all right. and then they traded a guy they shipped a guy out that was like number six and then they just made me number six and i played every game after that and you know 10 playoff games and everything like that but i wasn't playing much like i wasn't like like i said no goals and four assists or something like 60 games or 56 right. games or something like that 100 pims 120 pims or something like that so i was just kid. Doing, kid. doing what i could to survive out there <laughs> basically six foot 250 pounds or whatever i was soaking wet at that point so but uh yeah so i, I wasn't never got drafted wasn't really um on the radar of too many teams i did get invited to the flames main camp or rookie camp i guess um after my 19 year old year when i got traded to to red deer so like i said you know the sutter connection there brent kind of facilitated that through through daryl and calgary oh daryl's son brent was on the team and and brent's son brandon and red deer too that i played with so you know kind of in with the whole crew there and they they um you know set set me up with that after my my 19 year old year and you know, nothing came of it at that point. I actually, you know, didn't have a good camp at all. And it really kind of 
reintroduce me to, you know, what I needed to do to maybe explore things at the next level. So it was a nice little wake up call that I got there too. So I'm fortunate for that, but no undrafted free agent. And then signed after my overage year, went to Florida's development camp and had a good showing there. They invited me back for, for main camp. And I was, you know, funny story. I was actually, I was signed up for classes. I was committed to, to go to school and play at university of Alberta um, I was, you know, had everything set for September, start of September. And I was like, hey, I'm going to to camp in Florida. I don't really think anything's going to happen, but I want to give it a shot. So, you know, I'll be back when I'm back, basically. Right. And then, yep. you know, they offered they offered me the deal and and I took it after main camp. So, you know, it didn't end up playing for for U of A, but that's kind of where it was supposed to go after that. Ah, OK. OK. See. So, yeah. So when in the earlier in the show when I introduced you as the Florida Panthers draft pick, completely wrong. I didn't want to get on you right away. I wanted you, you know, to get oh, a get I your groove it. going. But I mean, it <laughs> felt good. It felt good to live as a draft pick for at least you know however long we've been going here. A few Absolutely. minutes is nice to be, uh, you know. Yeah, nice for sure. To be thought of as a draft pick, but so yeah, because we um, a bunch of us came to the Saddle Dome one night. You played in an exhibition game with Florida, and. Uh, I think that was probably the first night I met you, but you came up, your parents were there. We were there with Rolly. Um, so you spent your, and I was going to bring it up. I have it written down, but so your first pro season was pretty much spent in Rochester then in the AHL. Yeah. I played 20 games in Florida in the, in the coast. That's where I started. Um, we were split that year in Rochester between Buffalo and Florida. So it was oh, okay. like, no team at that point had any prospects, either of them. Like we were still bad. They still missed the playoffs, but it was like, we were only had 3d Buffalo coaching staff was kind of running the show. So they had 4d, we had three, right. So it was like, they had their two, two or three best prospects already in the A. So it was just like, Hey, we're going to sign you. We're going to send you down to the coast. So whatever, I went down there, sunny South Florida, Ooh. nice place to play to start off your pro career yeah, sounds terrible. Um, so yeah, it was awful. Yeah, couldn't <laughs> couldn't couldn't deal with it due to the uh, the minus forty winters I'd been putting up with the Moose Jaw and Red Deer. But yeah, it was great. Um, got got to get my feet wet. Um, you know, and then kind of funny story about that when I first got called up to Rochester, um, guy named what Mike Weber, um, Ontario guy, played for Winter Spitfires, I believe he was a Buffalo. Buffalo D at that time, Buffalo prospect. He got suspended, shot the puck at the ref, allegedly. Um, <laughs> he got suspended for five games. So they called me, they called me up. They called me on like Wednesday. And this was middle December. And they were like, hey, we're gonna bring you up for the weekend. Um, three and three, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then we're gonna send you back down. I was like, All right, awesome. Like, this is my first taste of the American League. Like, this is this is awesome. I'm I'm pumped for this, right? So Funny thing is my parents were flying down to Florida before Christmas. They're going to spend about a week or 10 days down there with me, just doing whatever, you know, I hadn't seen them for, for months. So they're flying in on Thursday and I got the call Wednesday and I called them. I'm like, Hey, I'm leaving for the weekend. I'll be back on Monday. Like no big deal, but you know, you guys will have to chill, chill on your own for the weekend. And they're like, okay, whatever that is what it is. Um, never went back, stayed the entire rest of the season. <laughs> Now, next, you know, two years in Rochester after that. So I just played well, I guess, and got into a fortunate situation and 
you know, got an opportunity and ran with it. So yeah, never went back after that. My parents spent their nice 10 days in Florida by themselves and chilling and then went back home and didn't even get to see him for Christmas. So, but uh, yeah, that was the story there, but that's how I got up to Rochester and then finished the year there and, you know, kept on going after that. Yeah. Three pretty decent seasons in Rochester is, um, you know, is the travel is the bus trips, all that stuff that you hear about the AHL. Is it as, you know, is it as greasy and gritty as, as everybody makes it sound like it is? At that point it was for sure. Um, Cause the league was just like littered with heavyweights, your John Morastis and your Blonskis and you know, all those guys, right? Yeah. The heavies of the heavies, Trevor Gillies and, and all those guys. Right. So it was not fun going into places like Syracuse and Binghamton every other weekend, right. To play those teams 12 times and just uh, a lot of, a lot of rough and tumble affairs for sure. I mean, especially as a guy that, you know, myself as a big physical defenseman that came out of junior with unknown, but with a, a good number of penalty minutes under my belt, it was like, you know, everyone wanted a piece for whatever reason, all the, all the tough guys. Right. So I managed to dodge most of them, but I had to, had to get it after with middleweights just from, you know, throwing big hits and stuff like that. But um, Rochester is pretty central place. So you not know, bad for travel. A bunch of places pretty closer. I think obviously the schedule maker was, you know, not, not the best at that point. There was times where we would go Friday at home, we'd play. And then we, we went to Grand Rapids on Saturday, which is like 10 hours from Rochester. And then we went back to Binghamton for Sunday afternoon, which is like another four hours past Rochester the other way, basically. So it was like, it was a gong show, but I got plenty of that when I was playing in in the coast and in Brampton, especially um, as well. So it was like the travel there was, was hellish way worse than anywhere else I ever played just because we were, you know, closest game is, is five hours away, Toledo, Kalamazoo, stuff like that. Right. So it just was, tons and tons of time on the bus and those were the bad ones because they don't care about you know <laughs> the players as much and you got to play on the weekends right because basically you got to get games where there's going to be a lot of people there so you know everything's geared towards the weekend and in, in the minors so it's just um you know you got to grind it out in three and threes and four and fives and and all that good stuff right that the uh the silver spooners in the show don't get to experience, <laughs> I guess, for the vast majority of them anyways. Yeah. Well, I heard actually uh, Brian McGratton say on the Missing Curfew podcast that the fighters in the AHL are actually tougher than the fighters in the NHL. The difference is the guys in the NHL can play better. Is there some truth to that? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. The guy like the player, the guys in the NHL could, you know, they could get up and down and, and for the most part. But yeah, those American leaguers, some of them were there just strictly, strictly to fight. And they were tough, tough, tough. But, you know, also not gifted players. Some of them just, you know, not useful out there, but very useful on the uh, on the other side of things for sure. So, yeah, it was a it was a tough league at that point. That's that's no doubt. And that, um, you know, New York, central New York. Western New York area with Roch and Syracuse and bingo. And, you know, they were tough, tough, tough teams for sure. So you have, you put in your three seasons in Rochester. 
And then you make the jump to the KHL. How how did that happen? Was that just, you know, I need to look at playing in a better league? I need to, like, it worked for Gio. It worked for Mark Giordano, right? Were you looking at Gio and was like, hey, if it, if it can happen to him, maybe it can happen to me? Yeah, a little bit. It kind of came out of nowhere. Um, you know, I had a good, a very, very good year my last year in Rochester. We had a good team. I had a good year personally. Um, you know, I thought that I would get maybe an opportunity to get up with Florida at some point. It didn't happen. And then they sent me, you know, my qualifying offer wasn't wasn't a great offer. I thought I maybe deserved a little bit more and they wouldn't really budge on it, right? It was like qualifying offer, bus kind of thing. So I was sitting on it, you know, wondering what I was going to do. Um, and then the Russia thing came out of nowhere. And my agent just called me one day. He's like, hey, I got a team in, in the KHL wants to sign you. Um, you know, what do you think about it? And I just kind of had to, you know, sit back. And he's like, the problem is you've got like three days to decide. Like the offer's on the table and then it's it's not if you don't pull the trigger, right? right? So, you know, credit to to him, um, Rick Vallette, High River guy. Um, oh, yeah, I know Rick. You know, with Octagon Hockey, um, was my longtime agent. And a credit to him as a guy that was, you know, always gave it to me straight and, you know, went outside the hockey part of things and, and told me, you know what, Hey, this is, this is a really good opportunity to play in a great league, get some experience of, you know, going overseas, seeing how things are done. And obviously, you know, the money factor over there is, is much, much more than I was getting in the American hockey league. So, you know, he's like, this could be, you know, life-changing money for you. Right. So, you know, I just, that part of it was, you know, I jumped on it and I did it and for one year and, you know, decided to come back afterwards. I had a, I had a player option for a second year that I decided not to take when I came back and signed with Calgary, but yeah, just a, a an awesome experience over there. Um, an eye opener for sure. Like I said, I'd never been to Europe and, and Russia is not a spot that most people would go on vacation by any means. So, um, but it was, it was good, man. The hockey was great. So were you, um, were you just paid like straight cash? Like you hear some of the stories over there and, you know, they get handed just a duffel bag full of money, shit like that. Like is, were you seeing that like beat up old shitty planes that you're flying around on like 20 hour plane trips, the Russian gas, whatever the fuck the Russian gas is. Keep hearing about that. Like, is that stuff all legit? Like all those stories, or is that maybe just different from team to team? Um, team to team a little bit. So I was in Minsk, Belarus. Um, the government was heavily involved in the team there. Okay. Um, the president of the country, big hockey guy, you know, they built a brand new rink there. Amazing rink seat, you know, 14,000. We averaged like 11,000. Like it was amazing. Um, we got paid in direct deposit. Okay. Um, into bank accounts, but you know, I wasn't keeping it in my account you know, long, just in case I sent it right back home right away, kept yeah. enough to live off of. But, you know, I did play with guys over there that had been in other places and had been through the whole cash thing and, and all that. Right. And you know, we did have some plane rides. We, we flew, we flew to uh, um, a more Habarovsk is the place. I think they still have a team. They're like across the, basically a Delta from China. So it oh, was, wow. Uh, it was a 10 hour time change for us from, from Minsk. So we flew all the way across where we had to stop and gas up in the middle 
That's how long of a flight it was. Like it was insane how long this flight was. Um, played over there. Crazy, crazy flights. Um, you know, unfortunately, the year after I was there was was the year of the plane crash with with locomotive right. there. Yep. Um, interesting um part of that is you know, we had played them in the playoffs the year before. Um, and they were flying to Minsk when the plane crashed. Oof. So, I mean, I, I, we'd done that flight a bunch of times. I'd done that flight on that, you know, that style of plane that right. they, you know, said was responsible for, you know, a, a lot of crashes and stuff over there. And, you know, I didn't really think, think too, too much about it at the time, but just, you know, obviously not how they, they do it in the national league over here with the flights and everything like that. But, um, I do have a funny story about, I guess, funny now that I look back at it, but not at the time. <laughs> not uh, at the fly, time. Uh, flying over there. We were leaving after a game. We were somewhere in, in Siberia, middle of Russia, and it was like, it was winter. It was full on um, blizzard, you know, cold as hell. And we, we jumped on the plane to fly to wherever the next place we were going was. And we're sitting there, sitting there, sitting there for 25, 30 minutes on the on the tarmac. And you know, it's a chartered plane, right? So we're not waiting for anyone. Um, pilot comes on the the system, you know, says something in Russian, whatever. You know, I look at the guy beside me as a, a guy that spoke both Russian and English. I said, hey, what do you say? He said, oh, we just got de-iced the plane and, and then we're off. I was like, all right, wicked. So I'm sitting, you know, like I said, we're a chartered plane. I got my own row. I'm just chilling. Um, I'm sitting kind of by the window, whatever close to the wing i'm like behind the the one side wing so you know i flip up the shade i'm i'm expecting to see like the the de-icing truck there and they're spraying the wings down we're getting ready to rock i just like i see a truck but it's like like a regular truck and then i see a ladder up to the wing and i see this guy that's on the wing like chipping the ice off the wing (laughs) like like with a with the scraper like you would use on your driveway and i'm like oh my god like i just i don't i just shot my thing and i was like well this might be my last flight like this is not this is a gong show but the other guys weren't even phased like the russian guys weren't phased by it so i mean you just you you are you know you see your circumstances right and and you are what you grow up in and that's just you know they didn't think anything of it but yeah that's my that my one wild travel story from over there was just uh yeah, it was uh, something I'd never seen before with the uh, the manual de-icing of the plane. Yeah, I can't say. Yeah, it's I've never even heard of that. Fuck, I just thought you know, like de-icing chemical, or whatever it is. I just thought that was global, like everybody yeah. had it. Right, the spray. Yeah, exactly. Right, it's like that's commonplace. They make it. Like, why not have it? This is a an airport, an international airport, right? So, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe if they had the lads up on the wings at Pearson, though, some flights might get out of there on time. Like, fair point. You know, fair point. Yeah, they employed some guys to grind it out a little bit. We're not be waiting all the time every time you fly in and out of there. But that's right. So, so you you spend your season in the KHL, and then the kid comes home. The kid comes home. You signed your contract with the Calgary Flames. You're back. You're back in the Sutter fold too, because Daryl was still coaching in Calgary when you came back. Is that correct? Did I get the no, right Brent timeline was. there? Oh, Brent, Brent was, was back. Brent. Okay. Brent was coaching. Yeah, Daryl had left. He was in LA at the time. Okay. And uh, yeah, and Daryl and Brent was coaching. Yeah, and um, uh, Dwayne Sutter was one of their high up scouts. So he was kind of helped me get. Obviously, Brent had a hand in it too. Helped me get back in the mix there because Dwayne was one of the high up guys in Florida when. 
when wow, I ended okay. up there. So he kind of helped me in there. And yep. then I came back around. And interestingly enough, like a couple of years after that, he was with Edmonton. And I ended up in Oklahoma City, too. Right. So it was yes. just like, you know, like I said, I mean, uh, they those guys had so much to do with my success. And, you know, like I said, when they, they like you and they they value you, you know, they'll do everything they can to get you going. So, yeah, um, I mean, in short, just an amazing feeling to to know, you know, July 1st that you got the the offer. I remember when when Rick called me and just said, hey, you know, the flames, the flames want to sign you. And it was like, it was surreal, right? Cause you know what you, you're growing up watching that team and, you know, I've been in the dome so many times and just, I mean, amazing, amazing experience to, to be there with, you know, the guys that they had there for how long it was right with, you know, just my dry stall was right beside Iggy's oh, and it yeah. was like, you know, Kipper and Craig Conroy and, you know, Bertuzzi yeah. was there at that time. And like, it was, man, it was, it was sick. The first Adrian time. A coin. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They had like some, some awesome guys there. Bo Meester was there too, who was in Florida when I was there. Yeah. Um, you know, just like, I, I can't even put into words, like the first game that I played exhibition wise for the flames. Cause I, like you said, I played for Florida and Calgary before, which was a tremendous thrill as well. That was cool. But you know, the first time that I put on the flaming sea in the saddle dome as a member of that team was like, it was, That'd be it was, cool. yeah. I've never been more nervous in my life than that <laughs> moment. Right. And you're, like I said, you're looking around the room and like, you know, guys like Iggy that I'd grown up as a Southern Alberta kid watching and, you know, the cup run in 04 and everything like that. Like it just was, it was insane. So, um, you know, a ton of fun there. You know, I thought, I really thought that that was going to be the time for me that I was going to break in because I had a really good camp and I came to camp in shape and I was ready to rock. And, you know, the organization was going through a transition at that point from older guys to younger guys. So, you know, I thought I was going to, going to be able to kind of squeeze in there. And I, and I thought I did, you know, for the most part, everything I could, but just circumstances kind of, you know, broke down and it didn't end up working out for whatever reason, but you know, always you, were, you were pretty time. close. Like you went on, if I remember right, um, you know, they finish up camp and they always go on like a team bonding trip or whatever. Like you were on that trip. Were you not? I was, yeah, I was yeah. the eighth defenseman. So um, they had to keep, they had to had to either keep 7D and 14 forwards or 8D and 13 forwards. And they decided to go with 14 because they had a bunch of guys on one way still that they couldn't send down. Okay. So it was basically like I was the last guy sent down. I was got sent down the day before opening night. Um, American League season had already started. Like I got sent down and, and Abbotsford was on the road in Cleveland. So um, tough, tough feeling. Um, you know, I thought I was there. I thought I played well. Um, and then they kind of said, you know, Jay Feaster was the GM at the time. And he said, you know what, Hey, just go down and bide your time, play well, and you'll be right, right back up when we get an opportunity. And then, you know, it just, I watched two or three, he get called up before me and it just never, never worked out for yeah. whatever reason. But, you know, I think part of that's on myself too. I just, you know, I didn't handle that send down as well as I could have. And, you know, I just was was kind of bitter, to be honest, for the first little bit. And I thought that I'd done everything I could to earn a, at least a look. And it just, you know, kind of spiraled from there. And, 
and then it just, you know, couldn't, couldn't recover that season and get, get back up there, unfortunately. So, you know, one of the, my biggest regrets in my career for sure is just a missed opportunity and, and kind of always think about what could have been in Calgary there and everything with your family and everything being close, but, you know, still grateful for the opportunity that I got there. It was so amazing. And, you know, the experience and everything and the time that I spent there was, was awesome. Yeah, like, fuck, we could have been riding your coattails at Cowboys or Ranchmen's instead of fucking McFadden's coattails. I know, right? And the buckle always talks, right? And, <laughs> but it's just, you know, I guess, you know, you got to give him something, though. He's got, you know, that, boy, fuck, he's gotta... that fucking guy, him and a couple guys, uh, Colton Brown and Matt Henry, they came into Toronto one time for a Jays, Jays playoff game. And uh, we were up on top of... Uh, Remember when Gretzky had his restaurant yeah. downtown? Oasis, so up on top yeah. was Oasis. So we were up there and that little fucking Viking pulls his belt buckle off and he's wearing it around on his shoulder. Like he's fucking Ric Flair or something. Right. And one of my buddies from out from Ontario here, he's like, put that fucking thing. Like this is Ontario. Nobody cares about your fucking yeah. belt buckle, buddy. Nobody but, even uh, knows what that thing is. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> even knows what, like they just thought you brought your dinner plate to the fucking bar. Right. Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, yeah, good times hilarious. with him. So I always give it to Roy. I think I, we always rip on him telling that he basically like spiraled the Blue Jays into what they are now. Like they had a run that year and then he came out for that playoff series. And yep. that was the whole breakdown where they end up losing. And then now yep. it's just like they've been in one chasing their tail for the last you know, five, six years since then. Right. So it's Absolutely. just, I always rip on him and tell him I want him to come out, but not, not during ball season. Cause he just, <laughs> he wrecks the vibe of the group. So. Absolutely. So you did kind of touch on it and I mean, listen, no disrespect, but you did become a bit of a fucking suitcase after you left flames camp. I mean, we could spend some time on it, but, but that does happen to minor. I, and again, no, no disrespect to minor league hockey players. Like you end up, you kind of everybody kind of gets their chance. It doesn't work out for whatever reason, and it just becomes a lot of bouncing around. It seems like to me is that kind of how it goes, or yeah, was it, it does, just yeah, by? But you also moved. You moved east here um, to be with your wife and stuff. So is that kind of why it happened the way it did as well, or um, a little bit? But it was more, you know, the circumstances of that season. Um, you know, I didn't have a great year in Abbotsford ended up getting moved at the deadline to Chicago uh, finished off there you know it's tough when you go into another group when you're you know Vancouver was Chicago's parent team at that point and they had all their prospects loaded there right so you know they're not going to play a guy that's a Calgary contracted guy over their young yeah. guys that they want to develop right so I kind of finished off my year there and then during that season, I became a veteran in the American Hockey League too with the, the amount of games played that I had. Um, and there's only four spots available for those guys and, and a fifth for a guy that's between a certain amount of games. But okay, I didn't uh, know some that. Te- technicalities there. So all of a sudden I was like a, an old guy that was only that was coming off a down year. And, you know, it just it didn't work. And, you know, I couldn't couldn't get a deal for whatever reason. And then, you know, I went over to to Sweden. Uh, the second lockout happened that year. So the, the shortened help. season, um, you know, I had a good start there. I played, I had a trial with a contract attached to it. Nice, nice dollar figure on the contract. And, you know, the, the small place where I was, from, where I was playing in Sweden, 
um, you know, when the lockout was going to extend, uh, the, the Swedish top league wouldn't let Swedish players come back and play NHL guys. So they all came down to play in the second league where I was. Um, and, you know, we signed Jonathan Erickson from the Red Wings and oh, yeah. um, Carl Hagelin out of Washington there. So um, they had some big money guys, Swedish guys, hometown guys that they brought back. And they were like, look, we don't have the money to pay you your contract because we got to pay these guys. So then they cut me loose. Um, I came back, stayed in Toronto for about a month looking for a team. I didn't want to go back to the coast. I thought that I'd done enough in my career at that point to warrant not having to go back there and grind it out. So, you know, and then once again, I credit Rick for this, just telling me, Hey, you know what? You got to get playing again. So I went down to Stockton, California, another trip opposite Toronto, (laughs) played a weekend there, um, back-to-back games. I think I had like three assists in two games. And then sure enough, Oklahoma city called me the next day and I ended up going up there for, you know, two, three months. Awesome time there. They were the Oilers team at the time. So, you know, during the lockout, Eberly Hall, Justin Schultz, Nugent Hopkins were all down there. Zach Storkini. Uh, yeah, he wasn't. He was no. he was not down there at that time. No, he was up chilling, I guess, with the NHL was guys. Stevie, but... Was big Stevie McIntyre down there? No, but I did play with Stevie McIntyre in Rochester my last year. Okay. Before yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, what a what a animal that guy is so yeah. tough so tough yeah so yeah then i ended up you know the lockout ended and they made a big shift in their their guys there and you know so i ended up leaving there and ending in the season in finland so i'm back across again had a pretty good run in finland like i said another good contract it was great experience there hockey was great um people are great in finland awesome I got suspended at the end of the regular season there. Five games, missed the last three regular season games, first two games of the playoffs. Um, what did you do? I hit a guy kind of, I'd say borderline at the time, but over there they were starting to uh, clamp down on this stuff, you know, international style rules and everything. So um, it was nothing I hadn't done back in, in the right. American League a bunch of times. So. But yeah, got a five gamer, so I missed the first two games of playoffs, and we uh, we lost them both. I think ended up down two nothing. We ended up losing that series, and I think the uh, the organization was a little bit sour on me after sour. that. So yeah, so then I ended up coming back, um, and then went back to South Florida where I had loved it to start with, just to kind of really find my game because I wasn't. You know the the two years, I guess year and a half after I got after I left Abbotsford, I just wasn't the player that was on the cusp of the NHL. You know, three four months before that, and I just lost my confidence, and I just wasn't the guy that I'd been before. So I just wanted to go a place where, you know, I knew and I was familiar, and I wanted to get my game back and just you know grind it out there for a year. And that ended up not happening either. I got called up <laughs> to Syracuse and signed there for half the year, and you know, had, a, had some, some family issues with my wife's family during that time too. Her mom got sick. And so it just was another kind of rough year and, you know, stuff happens. Right. And, and then, you know, went back to Florida for a second year, trying to crave that still stability yeah. and everything. And, you know, 10 games in the year, I, I torched my knee and missed half the season there too. So, you know, came back and played well again and ended up in Charlotte 
after that for a stint as well. And then, you know, just after that, I was like, I just, I gotta, I gotta come home now, which is Ontario. Right. And, and yeah. to Brampton and, you know, what my wife and I had been married for, for a year and change at that point. And she, she has her own thing going here in, in Mississauga. So, you know, I wanted to come back and spend time with her and, you know, kind of transition my life. Right. And just, you know, if you're going to play somewhere in the minors, you want it to be comfortable and be with the people you care about. So, so that was the goal there and, and, and transitioned back home to Brampton where I, where I finished her off. So. Does, I haven't looked, does Brampton still have their coast team or are they? No, they, they folded during COVID. Okay. So my last year, the, the year that I retired, I guess we got shut down middle of the year with, was COVID year. And then the next year they decided to to call it. So right. And that going back to that whole kind of when you were bouncing around the AHL there, I'm glad you 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 touched on that about how you know you were a a flames prospect playing for Vancouver's farm team, and then you became a veteran. And like I had no idea that that I mean, I I understood that draft picks went to other teams, farm teams and stuff like that. But it never really occurred to me that Van, the Chicago wolves would be like, well, we're not going to play this guy. Cause he doesn't even, he's not even in our system. It's kind of interesting how you touched on that. And that is why a lot of guys do so much bouncing around. And then like you said, what are you only allowed? Was it five quote unquote veterans on the roster? I yeah. had no idea like that rule even existed. Yeah, it's gotten young, the game, really. The American Hockey League is a very, very young league now, and it's just, you know, that's that's part of that transition. It's it's hockey, right? So, you know, those are factors, obviously, but like I mentioned, I just wasn't the player that I had been six months before that. You know, I was, I was down on my confidence. I was, you know, just trying to hang on, trying to survive rather than trying to succeed, right? And it's tough to play like that when you're, when you're playing on eggshells and you're – trying not to make mistakes right so oh, yeah, um, for sure you know that, that was hard and and just a tough tough transition in my life but you know honestly the year that when I got sent to Chicago when I uh, is when I met my wife actually you know a couple months after that so you know kind of I guess things kind of happened for a reason and you know now in my life where I'm at being in Ontario for the last 10 11 years and having her and having you know two young kids now and everything is just you know that part of the hockey was was starting to come to an end but now you know the next facet of my life was starting to begin so it was just um a transition time you know personally and professionally both right on so let's get into what you're doing now i uh, i noticed on instagram the other day you've, you've started your own business um you're you're in coaching you're coaching now and you've um you've got like a developmental business going working with young defensemen i'm assuming uh talk to us about what you're doing now now that you're retired from the game and and what you're up to yeah i'm really really excited about this actually i, I got into coaching kind of right away after i retired i, I was going to take some time to to spend time with the family and everything like that and then you know actually fortunately enough my my coach in brampton Colin chalk there he coached me for five years. Um, you know, he came back during the, the COVID year to, to take over and coach uh, the Miss Saga reps in the GTHL, um, the U16 team. And he's like, hey, I need an assistant. Do you want to come, you know, with me and work with the D? So, you know, I decided to do it, get back in the rink. I was still, you know, craving hockey. And, and we, 
you know, got shut down because of COVID. That's, you know, essentially ended my career kind of at that point. Um, so I jumped at the opportunity and then, you know, lo and behold, COVID shut that year down. We didn't play many games. And the next year he was slated to be the coach again. I was going to be the assistant. And then, you know, he took a took the job in Bakersfield in the American Hockey League kind of last minute, right before we were about to start. So, you know, they turned the team over to me and I've been with that group for three years now. So oh, right um, a lot of a lot of growth on that front and, and working with, you know, 15 year old kids is is a challenge, but that they're high level hockey players and they, you know, they want to get better and they want to work and they, they take it seriously, which is great. And then, you know, once I kind of got my, my feet wet there, I, I, I've always liked working with defensemen and, and young defensemen. And I felt like, you know, coming through myself as my career and, and even young defensemen now, they don't get enough individual attention you know, in their game, right? If, if you go to a rink and you see all the rink boards, it's, you know, goalie coaches, right? Goalie coach, goalie coach, goalie coach, yeah. goalie coach, right? And then skill development guys, you know, which are great because you got to stop the puck and you got to score goals. But I think there's that middle ground of defensemen and, you know, they need special attention, right? Especially stuff away from the puck and, and all that stuff. So I, I kind of grabbed onto the groups, a couple of guys from the groups that I coached last couple of years and, some of my incoming guys for this year and guys in the loop around the league that are familiar with me now and started, started working with them. I got, you know, a group of about 16 guys now that I work with right now, broken down into three different sessions that, that I do. So, um, you know, the, the development side of things is something that I, I want to get into more. I actually enjoy it more than, than full on coaching. Um, oh, yeah. just, just because I find that, I mean, and you'll can attest to this with your coaching side too, is, you know, as a coach of a team, the the focus is always kind of on the negative of, you know, what you're not doing, you know, this is what we're not doing. This is what we're not doing. This is why we're yeah. not succeeding. Right. Whereas the development side of things, you get guys at a certain level and everything is geared towards the positivity of getting you know, their game to the next level, right? And everything, you know, the growth is celebrated and it's all focused on moving forward, getting better, growing, right? And that relationship that you can build with the players is is extremely positive. And, and I've just really, really enjoyed that part of it for sure. So that and just breaking down the, the new style game too. I'm trying to, to do that a little bit on Instagram as well as, you know, through the playoffs, I kind of, when I got it off the ground, it was just, you know, seeing clips that, you know, I always tell my players, you want to learn how to do things, you know, watch the NHL, watch the best in the world, how they do it, but don't watch a game to watch the game, watch a game for the defenseman. Right. You know, Vegas is a great example of a group of just great D watch them, watch how they play individually, watch how they play within their system. Right. So, you know, the way that the kids now get their hockey is, through Instagram, through highlights, right? And it's all McDavid going end to end and flying around and, you know, Jack Hughes dangling guys and, you know, Svechnikov, Michigan, the puck and everything like yeah. that. And this is like, Fuck, this is what the nuts. young guys think hockey is now, right? When it's oh, not, yeah. you know, and I kind of spoke to it earlier about teaching these guys that are uber skilled, uber fast, how to play the game properly because you can be – 10 years old, 12 years old, 15 years old, and you have the puck all the time in a game, 
and then you get to junior A, major junior college hockey, you don't have the puck near as much. And then you get to the American Hockey League, the NHL, and you look at how much time is spent without the puck. It's like, what are you doing to influence the game positively when you don't have the puck, right? And that's the biggest thing these guys don't quite grasp and you have to really drive home with them is that game is played vastly without the puck. Mm -hmm. Like the top guys in the world, McDavid's a possession king and he has the puck for like two and a half minutes a game, maybe two minutes a game. And he plays 26 minutes, right? Like if you're a guy that plays 14 minutes, you probably have the puck for 30 seconds. Yeah. Right. So like, what do you do in the other 13 and a half minutes to positively influence the game and help your team win? You don't have the puck, how you get it back for yourself, how you get it back for the team. Like those are things that are, you know, I try and bring into my coaching philosophy, but also my development philosophy too, is just, you know, getting guys away from the puck and getting them involved in what are you doing to help your group when you don't have the puck, which is pretty much all the time higher level you get, right? Yeah, for sure. That's, uh, I'm glad you touched on that too. I've said it for a long time and some of the kids that play for me, they think I'm fucked, which is fine. But like (laughs) I've said, like social media and I'll, I'll just, I'll just, shout out sports center too. Like they've ruined the game of hockey because that's all they show that all they show is the highlights. And so now when the, you know, when a kid's got a puck on his stick, you don't just see a kid come down and, you know, step into one from the top of the circles anymore and, and beat a goalie, you know, right between his pad and his blocker. They've got to try and dangle all five of, of the opposition and go in yeah. and score a highlight real goal. And it fucking drives me nuts. But the other thing I want to ask you, since you're kind of specifically working with defensemen, so I coach in what they call the PJHL. So um, it would be comparable to the Junior B League out in Alberta. So yeah. we're we're kind of an older league too, right? Like it's a lot of guys that have gone and you know they've they've played their their Junior A or you don't get many major junior guys in our league, but and dude, you know they get a full time job or they decide they're going to go to school or whatever, they come back and they play in our league. We're having a very, very hard time, and I know we're not the only team finding defensemen. And this, this is a problem at the at the tier two level, right down to our level. And I know there's some midget teams in the area struggling to find defensemen. Do you think that has anything to do with all the highlights and everything you see on social media or Sports Center? Like kids just want the glory and the fame. They don't want to be just a a Jake Muzzin for lack of just a solid shutdown defender anymore. Cause it's not sexy. Right. Do you, do you think there's any correlation there? Yeah, I think, I think there is. I also think it's due to the way that players are mass produced now. Right. With like, like you say, the speed and the skill. So you put, you know, you could take any young defenseman and throw him up on forward and he's going to be effective because he had, can really skate and he has skill. And then he's like, well, why am I playing D then if I, you know, if I'm as skilled as all our forwards, right. I might as well just go play forward and score yeah. and it's more fun up there. Right. So it's not like, you know, the, the new style of player that's being produced, they're all being cranked out of these skilled, you know, development places and stuff like that, where they're all the same, the forwards and the D right. So then, like you say, guys don't want to play D and I'll be honest with you. It's not that fun, you know, <laughs> the stuff be. that you have to do unless you're, I mean, you're Kale McCarr, the game's pretty fun for him, but yeah. <laughs> it's like, right. So, you know, it's not, it's not glorious when you've got to go back for pucks and get ran down or block shots and stuff like that. Right. So guys just don't, you know, they don't 
like you say, want to do it, right? They want to be McDavid and they want to be, you know, those are the guys that are marketed now and you're on Instagram and you see that, all that stuff, right? So, you I mean, that's just what they're exposed to and that's what they want to be, right? So it's it's kind of a, you know, chicken or the egg kind of thing, I think, on, you know, whether it's what they're fed or, you know, what drives them as far as wanting to be that, right? So, but you do see that even, you know, the top teams in, in our U16 league, they're, you know, they have two very, very good D3 and the very best teams. And then the other three guys are just guys, right? That could be anyone, right? That quality of D is, is tough to find now. So it's, um, yeah, big time. you know, I'm hoping with my part in and I can take some guys from being just guys to, you know, very solid defensemen that can contribute at, at the next level. So that's kind of the goal. And I'm hoping to, to expand, you know, as the, as the years go on into to bigger and better things on that front. Right on. So let's give you a plug here where anybody that's listening that, you know, has got some young kids in the area that are maybe looking for one of these sessions with you, where can they find you? You got a website, you got an Instagram. I'm just on Instagram right now. So I'm just kind of starting small. It's uh Henry hockey LTD. I got the, uh, the bucket on right here. So yeah, there we go. A little shout out yeah. there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, right now I'm just, like I said, I'm, I'm booked for this summer and, and I'm looking to expand for next summer into, you know, I will start working with younger kids, um, in the future. I think, you know, right now I work with 14 to 16 year olds, basically just, you know, the stuff that I'm bringing to them is you got to be, you know, enshrined in D for a certain amount of time and, you know, have enough in your game to be able to, to understand these concepts, right? Like they're a little bit lost on young, young kids and, you know, you kind of will have to tailor some stuff to some, some younger kids moving forward. But, you know, I think I will do that at some point, but right now I'm just really focused on the stuff that I, that I like the most, but you know, the more people that reach out, the more sessions you want to put in. Right. So if there's a, if there's a, you know, a group of, of people or, you know, you start getting messages and stuff from younger players that want to put it together, then, you know, that'll be something that I'm definitely going to do. And and obviously I'm trying to creep into, you know, those junior A, OHL, you know, young pros as well too, that I think that, you know, there's a lot of value for those guys as well that are trying to make their bones in, in a spot that they've never been before. So, you know, it's just getting off the ground, but I'm really enjoying it. And the guys I've got working you know, with me this summer are awesome and they've been been doing great things and making great strides. So, you know, I think um, it's only going to get better from here. Awesome. Awesome. Well, listen, we're going to wrap it up there. Um, I'm going to keep your contact information. Got a couple big over 35 tournament men's league tournaments coming up this winter. You might, uh, I don't know if you can crack our squad or not. Yeah, but. probably not. I barely put my gear on now. I'm just, uh, I'm just a figurehead out there. I got the skates <laughs> and the trackie on only. I don't even know if I know how to put my full stuff on anymore, but um, <laughs> That's you know, funny. See, right now, on. Yeah, the over 35s though might be a beacon spot for me. I want those young bucks out there buzzing around too much. It gets oh, yeah, too much energy in those guys. I'll tell you what, the over 35s where it's at. I turned 40 in May, so I'm going to start looking for the over 40 tourneys now. Creep right in there. You could be a ringer. Well, that's right the in thing. The bottom like, edge of the group. It's funny when you quit playing junior or pro or whatever, your phone's ringing all the time to go play in those open tournaments, right? And then you get to that 32, 33, and the phone stops ringing. Yeah. Then you turn 35 and it fucking starts ringing again. Yeah. You're like, all right. And then you're it dies off, the you know, 38, yeah. 39. Now I'm 40. 
phone's ringing again. It's it's fucking awesome. I love it. Nice. You get you hit your your prime like three or four times, right? You're yeah, like you wicked. know you get it's in so in the awesome. bottom of every group and you're you're buzzing. You're the new uh, the hot <laughs> ticket. That's right. But thanks for your time, man. That was that was awesome. So much information. Such a good conversation. And uh, yeah, just yeah. And again, sorry you weren't the first professional athlete, but hey, we'll you know I'll make it up to you somehow. No, no, man. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. I, I you know, the episodes I'd listened to, I, I got a couple unsolicited shout outs there. So I felt like I had to, to get on and get in the mix with you. So it was, uh, it was, it was great to do it, man. I, I appreciate the catching up and you know what I think um, I love what I love about your podcast is that you can, you know, have guys like Jermaine Franklin on and you're like, you know, professional and buttoned up. And then you, you get your boys on here and you, you turn it loose sometimes too. So it's, uh, you know, you got the, you got both sides of it, which is great. So I really yeah, well, enjoy I appreciate, it, man. I appreciate it. it. Yeah. All right. Take it easy, man. We'll talk soon. Right on. Thanks, Coxie. So listen, that was a fun episode. That was fun to sit down and, and talk to Hank. Um, I could sit and talk almost minor league hockey more than I could talk about the NHL. Obviously, you know more of the players in the NHL and, and, and all that stuff, but the allure of playing in the minor leagues, you know, the bus trips, just the camaraderie, the shenanigans, the the stuff you get up to, the stuff you get into, the stuff you see, um, just riding shotgun side by side with the boys all the time. I mean, fuck. Sign me up. Sign me up to play some AHL hockey. I will play for league minimum. Um, yeah, I just I just think it would be a blast. So that was fun. That was fun to talk to uh, Hank. And please check out his Instagram on the uh, Henry Hockey. And uh, listen, if you're a young hockey player that's looking to make a difference in the game, the last five to ten minutes of that interview there, Hank had some good stuff for you young hockey players. Remember, it's not always what you do with the puck. It's what you do away from the puck. All right? Try and keep that in mind, kids. Not everything is a fucking highlight reel out there, okay? So, anyways, once again, thanks to Jordan Henry. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks for listening. And as always, tell your friends. Tell your fucking friends about the Cox Talks podcast. Thanks for listening.